Welcome to In My Town with Emery Hayes. All material herein under copyright. Season 1, Podcast 6. My Neighbor Hates My Mower. My lawnmower is an embarrassment. It chokes and sputters, coughs, and sometimes gasps into silence. And then it has to cool down before starting again. Once, a few years ago, a neighbor came over and told me he has a buddy who can give it a tune-up. Nice guy. He took the mower to work with him the next day and returned it a week later, and not so much as a hiccup with it until recently. It's cranky, selective in the ground it will cover, and loud in its protests. I blame it on the rugged and uneven geography of my backyard. It slopes into a canyon. But that's not my biggest outdoor nemesis. The gopher is. They have eaten 14 of my 16 rose bushes, and I have a feeling they're saving the other two as a special treat to be enjoyed sometime down the road. They leave mounds all over the yard, strew rocks, and tunnel under and around both the patio and the platform the air conditioning unit is perched on. It's those mounds and the rocks that have wrought further damage upon the lawnmower. The gopher is even indirectly responsible for the splintered slat in the fence. A rock ricocheted off the mower blade with enough torque it shattered the wood. I'm grateful it wasn't my shin. This is going somewhere, I promise. Last month, a blue heron landed in our backyard. This isn't unusual. We are just two blocks up from the lakes, have a beeline view of one of them, and our property is elevated. The herons that visit us are huge, one of them standing five foot tall or more, and they are carnivores. They are quick with a rapier beak and sly. This one walked daintily through our yard, surveying the gopher mounds. I think these birds know how to identify the most active of these tunnels. And then she lifted up on her wings to perch on the neighbor's roof. From there, she kept watch. I was on the back patio, cleaning up the grass around the stone, and stopped to watch her when she suddenly swooped and pulled a gopher from his hole. She swallowed him whole, gulping his plush body through her narrow throat. It was both disgusting and spectacular. My children named her Patricia. I don't know why. We've been waiting for her to come back because not a week after her late afternoon snack, another gopher appeared, taking over where his buddy left off. And this brings me back to the lawnmower. You really should treat it better, he says. It's the gophers, I tell him. They've trashed my yard. I know it. I put down mesh seven inches below ground, and they're chewing right through it, he commiserates. Maybe you should give up on the grass, he suggests. Few neighbors in this stretch of desert have any, but I lived in Oregon for nearly a decade, and before that, the Garden State. I have to have some green. He sees this in my face and shrugs. You're going to need a new one this time. Mower, he means. I'm going to try chili powder, I tell him. I read about it in an article. I could also try drenching a rag and pine saw and stuffing it down a hole or two. I've done my research, and those are just two gems I picked up along the way. You try those pellets? Yep, doesn't do a thing. And in my mind's eye, I imagine the gophers cheering as I spill a tablespoon of that poison into their holes. Poison that isn't potent. The gophers probably treat it like candy. Nothing does, he says. Wasn't like this when I moved in. It wasn't like this for the first eight or ten years, I say. I had thick green sod and an underground sprinkler system that worked. 
I don't think it can be fixed, he says, casting a withering look along with his aspersion at the silent mower steaming in the early afternoon heat. The sun glared off the metal. I don't want to buy a new mower. Even I know when to throw in the towel and I have plans. To turn the front yard into a desert scape of lavender and fire poker, purple fountain grass with their feather-like plumes and hibiscus in shades of scarlet and coral planted directly into the ground because gophers don't like these plants and rose bushes in three-foot pots. I'm considering three pygmy date palms because even though they're native to Asia, they're so California, can be arranged in an oasis-like manner and won't grow whip-thin and a hundred feet into the air. The backyard, my dream come true, is two separate patios around a built-in pool that boasts a slide on one end and a waterfall on the other, a pergola, a stone fireplace, and a barbecue that actually self-ignites, and then a swath of grass five by 50 feet where the dog, still a figment of my imagination, but a golden retriever named Chloe, can run after balls or frisbees, roll around and scratch her bottom, and for that, I'll need the lawnmower. No sense buying another one for such a small stretch of level, thickly carpeted lawn. It'll start again, I say. I know the mower, the way it carries on so insolently, is a bother to him. But it's 45 minutes every three weeks. Maybe he could plan his grocery shopping around that, take his wife out to lunch, or take his dog, which is known to bark in the wee hours of morning, for a walk. I'm sure of it, I say, hoping to cap off the conversation, to untie the knot without conceding ground, and that he'll walk back to his yard and his manicured garden beds thriving with blue-starred juniper and night-blooming jasmine. You want me to take it to work, he asks. My friend, maybe he could do something with it. But it's that something that puts me on edge. I have a feeling that this time it will come back. Maybe it will fly off the bed of his truck and become detrious on the side of the freeway. Or, when I question its whereabouts later, he'll look at me with his head cocked in a quizzical expression and say, I don't know where your lawnmower is, which is ridiculous in a number of ways, but most importantly, truth. My neighbor is a good guy. He extended himself once in kindness already, and I don't think he would ever do anything so nefarious. That would be completely out of character for him. And so I invented someone unrecognizable, which is good for fiction, but not the creative nonfiction piece I thought I was moving into. You see, this was my free write, based on a past encounter that quickly flew off the rails and became fiction. Creative nonfiction, by definition, are facts based on truth, presented in a more palatable format, with rich details and a pace that flows like a story as opposed to those real sleepers, autobiographies. I don't know any writers who don't pull from their lives when writing a story, like a bird plushing its nest. For some, it seems to be an effortless and graceful transition between fiction and creative nonfiction, but I can't do it, not yet. I have my mind set against it, a block I plan to scale someday. I shy away from what I perceive as a limiting way of telling my mind wanders beyond the real to all the possibility, but I want to write creative nonfiction. Many of my starts to novels or scenes within a novel begin with what really happened, made more fantastic when the real meets the muse. This is a good place, 
to pause the podcast and begin your own free write? Is there a character from your past wanting to be you on paper? Has something happened in your neighborhood that stuck with you? Begin with that. Explore where it takes you. How about conflict? Beginning with a tense moment or word or deed is the fast track to reader engagement. Get it down. Then come back. I have another neighbor I'd like you to meet. Free write. The rooster crows at noon. Sounds like a riddle or password into a mischievous group planning neighborhood mayhem, but it's simply a fact. I'm up before sunrise almost daily, sitting in the hushed kitchen, rattling away on my keyboard, and have never heard the rooster crow at first light. He's wearing a crow collar, my neighbor explains. I've never heard of such a thing, but I don't keep chickens myself, not even during my nine years living in Oregon. There was a ruckus last night, she says. Did you hear it? No, and I'm a light sleeper. After the house quiets, I can hear the ice drop into the bin from five rooms away and behind a closed door. Sometimes I wake up on the cargo train hurdles through our town, three miles away at 3.30 in the morning. What kind of ruckus? We're wondering if there were coyotes in the area, she explains. We've had one in the backyard, I say, but that was two years ago, last I knew. Sometimes I see them wandering the streets when I leave for work, but that's been a long time too. And then I remember the fox, a red coat with a gray back and tail, an adult, but not as big as a coyote. Do they even eat chickens, I wonder? I tell her, a few days ago, there was a fox in our front yard. It wasn't even dark yet. Strange because the street is close and several neighbors were using the cooling late afternoon to weed and plant in their garden beds. One was washing his car. We expect them more in the backyard because it slopes into a canyon or what was a canyon before houses were built in the shallow dips. Are your chickens okay? For right now, she says, I told my husband we need to let the dog out early and you keep it well lit. I've noticed a dome of bright white light after dark. Yes, does it bother you? Oh no, not at all. I just noticed. Well, they're not afraid of the light. I think there were several of them, coyotes or foxes, because the chickens were screeching. By the time we got out there, they were gone, but the chickens were still flapping around, frantic, she says, and there were no eggs this morning. Do you need some? We have extra, I offer. But she shakes her head. A thin ripple of skin across her brows, her frown. I wonder if I've insulted her. How particular, even in a pinch, are the people who raise organic eggs? They're cage-free, I promise. We have enough for today, tomorrow too. I'm just worried. She catches my gaze and hers is suddenly alight with urgency. Sometimes, after a great upset in the community, chickens stop producing. Forever? Some. And for a while after, what is produced can't be used. The quality is disturbed, she explains. I had a husband like that, I say, but it isn't true. I think I was trying to break up the intensity coming from my neighbor. Also, I've never considered a flock of chickens a community or that a terrified chicken will stop laying eggs. Really, there are connotations around her words that make me think of relationships and their slow sloughing off of everything that was good. Not really, I say quickly. I don't want to leave her with the wrong impression, and everyone in the neighborhood knows I haven't been married, a topic of some discussion, only the whips, wisps of which have gotten back to me. In fact, I don't know why I said that. Maybe you're trying to cheer me up, she suggests. I think so. 
I'm agreeable, but the truth is, I'm socially awkward, and the longer a conversation draws out, the more obvious that becomes. I would like to shoo her off my front porch and close the door, but even I know that would be the death knell to a budding friendliness. Will you let me know if you see the fox again, or coyotes, she asks. There's something fragile about her, perhaps the almost childlike bearing of her emotions that leaves her vulnerable. Of course, I say. But I don't have my phone in hand or a pen and piece of paper to scribble her number. I'll call you, she says, and pulls her cell phone from her back pocket. What's your number? I tell her. She told me her name, which I now forget, and I'm thinking about how I can restore her number once it hits my log when she helps me out. I'm that transparent. Kelsey, she says. End of free write. So what's the truth and how much of it really happened? There really was a ruckus at her chicken coop. She did show up at my door and introduced herself. But talk about the chick chickens came up only as an afterthought. Yes, there was a fox in my front yard. No, I didn't tell her I had a husband like that. But I needed something to spice up the conversation in terms of engaging the reader. Even I was growing bored with it. Her name isn't Kelsey. She didn't call me. She left her phone number on a piece of paper tucked inside a small gift bag of homegrown avocados and nectarines, which was hung on my door when I returned from my jog the next day. Yes, I do have great neighbors. And yes, I am at times socially awkward. Much of the dialogue is made up, but keeps closely to what was actually said. Does any of this really matter? Only for trying to write creative nonfiction. And I was in this second free write, in an effort to show through comparison that, for me, Fiction is far more entertaining. Making stuff up is fun. Of course, it has to come from somewhere, and many times it's from an encounter we've had. Even if a word from a stranger a decade later trips a memory, that becomes a scene that builds into story. Did that happen for you? Who showed up in your free write? What was the trouble? And did you stop long enough to explore it? Hash out the details so that your reader becomes ensnared in the conflict? I hope so. One thing humans know, identify with, and champion is a character who is going through trouble. And that's you, chasing the word.